Hi, and welcome to the Tall Friendly Atheist Dad podcast. My name is Damien, the Tall Friendly Atheist Dad. And these are my responses to a recent debate between Mr. Mitch Kaneup and Mr. Nathan Cravat, moderated by Mr. Cody Zorn, on the King James Bible and the King James Version only position. In the first part, I will cover the actual debate between the two gentlemen. In the next part, I'll cover the Q&A. As an atheist, I have no dog in this fight. But as a former charismatic fundamentalist, I do have opinions. This response isn't a point-by-point, sentence-by-sentence refutation. I simply don't have the depth of knowledge to do that. And... Other people more experienced and more qualified than me already have. These responses are simply my responses to the points that I want to respond to. There are two pressing points that I am reminded of as I listen to each speaker. Point one. No one owns Christianity. And this is because Christianity is simply a collection of beliefs based around belief in a deity described in a book. Some forms of Christianity add to the book. Some add extra books. Some have really weird doctrines like symbolic underwear or symbolic cannibalism or a pantheon of saints. But it all comes under the umbrella of Christianity. The reality is, anyone can make their own Christian sect, and while they may be unorthodox and heretical, and opposed to any of the Nicene and or Apostles' creeds, you can't deny that as long as they in some aspect acknowledge belief in God, and in the divinity of Jesus Christ, they're Christian. And this is a fact. And number two. This whole debate is like listening to two grown men argue about whose conspiracy theory is more true. The fact? No one in Christianity can prove the supernatural aspects that they believe about the faith. Christians can believe all they want. They can argue books at 20 paces all they want. They can accuse the other person of heresy and of being judgmental all day long. But until someone can prove the existence of the supernatural being that supposedly preserved the texts, I may as well listen to a flat earther argue with an Illuminati conspiracy theorist. My summary of the debate? I've always considered King James Version onlyism to be an illogical and untestable doctrinal stance with very little historical basis that exposes the hypocrisy of those who hold to it. And nothing highlights this more than the liberal slandering of theological enemies, despite their redeeming qualities, while steadfastly protecting those who it sees as heroes, no matter their flaws. And Mitch Knupp personifies this repeatedly throughout the debate. Nathan Cravat, while being much more generous and kind-spirited, suffers from the fact that he has bought into the book Hook, Line and Sinker. However, I see his position as much more reasoned. Though, this isn't saying much when your opponent says things like Hebrew is the closest language we have to English. With these criticisms, I'm not trying to malign people. What I am trying to do is provide criticism of bad ideas and of bad arguments that those people have made, as well as of the undercurrents of thought that props up those arguments. Truth be told, If I met either Mitch or Nathan online, as unlikely as that will be with Mitch, or on the street, 
I would be more than cordial and polite. I'm not one of those angry atheists who thinks it's a great idea to throw rotten eggs on people who think differently to me. I'd much rather be your friend so I can be there to help you process questions you have if you ever feel that the other side of the equation is starting to make sense. Besides, I've never seen anyone who was ever convinced of the merits of an argument by force or abuse. So, having said all that, truth be told, after listening to both sides, I ended up being much more critical of Knupp's position because, from as neutral a stance I can take on this issue, I think his position is a lot more untenable and that a lot of his statements are just straight out face-palmingly bad. If Knupp or anyone of his choosing has a problem with that and wants to argue that with me, I'd be more than happy to have that conversation with them. But Cravat doesn't escape criticism either. But most of my criticism of his position comes down to do with the fact that Christianity is a collection of beliefs around a book rather than the will and testament of a deity. Neither he nor anyone else can prove that the God of the Bible exists. Nathan, in his 45 years, hasn't done any better than what the body collective of Christianity in the last 2,000 years has been able to do in regards to coming up with a valid and sound case that doesn't rely on butchered philosophy or on the circular reality that to prove that God exists, you already have to believe that God exists. Whereas Knupp, I am critical of both his theology as well as of his points of view on history and cross-faith dialogue. Furthermore, Knupp didn't look like he was there to debate. He was there to preach, and the validation of his arguments came not from the strength of his comparative case, but from the whooping and hollering from the crowd, a crowd that was clearly partisan. If you took the entirety of Mitch's speeches and spliced them together, it would be indistinguishable from a sermon. And preaching a sermon is not how you win a debate. Saitem Brugenkate found that out the hard way when he went against Matt Dillahunty. Hello, this is Damien, the tall, friendly atheist dad. I hope you're having a great day, and welcome to the Tall, Friendly Atheist Dad podcast. Hey there, sorry to interrupt. Did you know you can now support the podcast on Patreon? Head on over to patreon.com forward slash tfadpod, where your monthly donations will help support what I do in producing enjoyable and thought-provoking material. Thank you. Hi, and welcome to the Tall Friendly Atheist Dad podcast. My name is Damien, the Tall Friendly Atheist Dad. And these are my responses to a recent debate between Mr. Mitch Kanup and Mr. Nathan Cravat, moderated by Mr. Cody Zorn, on the King James Bible and the King James Version only position. All right, Stephen Trachian from Garner, North Carolina. My question is regarding Psalms 12.7 where you had mentioned that it's not him in, in the words, and yet in the 1611 margin notes, 
That's exactly what it says. It says him, every one of them. And that's the help that the translators gave us. How do you go against what the 1611 translators put in the margin notes to build your case for King James onlyism? There are about six million Jews that would disagree with the word him, that God is going to preserve him because certainly six million of them were slaughtered by Hitler and they've been slaughtered ever since then. Many things happen in this world that go against a literal reading. God doesn't keep children safe. Christians have done many horrible things to theological opponents. And a person full of the Spirit seems to be indistinguishable from a moral atheist. So on that point, criticising a translation of a word because it would violate God's promises is not a sound argument. Besides, Psalm 12 was written by ancient Jews for ancient Jews. So you can't use the magical context transporter to make words spoken to ancient Jews apply 2,500 years later. The context of the passage is the words of the Lord. No, the context of the passage is that the psalmist is crying out for God's help. Mitch has seemingly taken one sentence nine-tenths of the way in, then decided that the whole psalm revolves around that one sentence. Even though the entirety of the passage and of the psalm is clearly about Israel being surrounded by evil people and God coming to the Jews' rescue and restoring their glory, which is a common theme throughout a lot of the Psalms. And as one noted Jewish commentator said, the Psalms are basically revenge fantasies. So the problem as I see it is that by attaching Psalm 12.7 back to Psalm 12.6, the meaning of the whole Psalm gets skewed out of place. It's a bit like moving a clipart object in Microsoft Word. You move that picture an inch to the right, and all of a sudden, the format of everything you've just written goes pear-shaped. To me, Psalm 12.6 should be attached to Psalm 12.5, and then Psalm 12.7 coupled with 12.8. If you took 12.6 out from the passage, the whole psalm would read easier as a cry for help from God. So it looks like, to me, that either 12.6 was inserted later, or the psalmist put 12.6 to confirm 12.5, which says, The Lord says, I will arise, I will place him in safety. Then, 12.6 says, The words of the Lord are pure and refined. Which reads to me like a poetic expression of trust and confidence. But yeah, you could attach 12.6 to 12.7, but then that orphans 12.8. On every side, the wicked prowl as vileness is exalted from the children of man. And very telling is that the JPS Tanakh version renders 12.7 as Thou wilt keep us, instead of him, and instead of Them, them, them. The other issue is, what does them refer to? Does them refer to the words of the Lord? Or to the Jews who are crying out for help from the Lord who gave them those words? Besides, it's only Christians who seem to attach prophetic meaning to the Psalms. I don't think Jews place as much significance as what the Christians have. They weren't perfect men. If they had been, they wouldn't have put the Apocrypha in between the Testaments. I'm yet to come across a rock-solid case as to why the Apocrypha shouldn't be included in the standard canon. I'm not too bothered that it isn't, because as I said, as an atheist, I have no horse in the race.
So no skin off my nose. But Job, a book that has Satan making a bet with God, and Esther, a book that literally does not mention God, not even once. And Ruth, a story about how a Moabite woman seduced an Israelite community leader to help ensure that she and her mother-in-law were provided for, somehow were included. I've heard the reasoning that the Apocrypha wasn't considered inspired, or that the Jews didn't consider it a part of their canon. But then, the Jews wouldn't consider the four Gospels part of their canon. Yet, the Gospels and Acts, which makes the Jews look like bloodthirsty assassins desperate to hold on to power, did somehow get included. They did that just for historical reading. You say they included it just for historical reading. But then again, Ruth could be just for historical reading. Or Esther, or First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, which are all historical narratives. Would you have been okay if King James decided to jettison them? And this is why I don't like a lot of apologetics. Apologists base their reasoning on flimsy grounds, use fallacious reasoning to dogmatically back up their case, Act like their case is bulletproof. Put the burden of proof on you to disprove it. Then when you do take the time to look into it, the whole thing falls apart under scrutiny. It's basically a souffle. That is in the text, and I'm not concerned about the margins, no more than I'm concerned about the modern version margins. I think the marginal notes are very important when trying to understand the flow of historical Christian thought. Knup is not the one whose job it is to define Christianity. He, alongside everyone else, is a Johnny-come-lately standing on the shoulders of giants. What he should be concerned about is making sure that people are increasing in well-being and that positive decisions are being made. All right, Brother Nathan, um, you said in your introduction you believed in an infallible 66 books of the Bible. Yes, sir. Then you kind of had a running narrative of it's in the originals. When were the originals compiled into 66 books of the Bible? But I believe the canon of Scripture, if that's a little bit clearer, I believe the canon of Scripture, which, which is the same, other than some verses that I think may have been added in the King James and some you think, I, or, or other people think, I don't know your position, I don't want to assume that, but other people think that have been taken away. So, uh, yeah, I believe the Bible. I believe we recognize the canon of Scripture. We didn't make the canon of Scripture. It was already recognized by the early church and the apostles and passed down to us. Then, you are uncritically accepting what other people have told you. A point I alluded to in my preamble. This reminds me of an episode in The Simpsons where the Speaker of the House briefly questions why there are two disparate pieces of legislation being voted on together. He briefly looks at the mound of paper in his hands and then goes, oh well, it's paper clipped. If you think about it, These people who trusted God when God told them that the earth had a dome over it are the ones you trust to tell you about that same God. I mean, you trust them to tell you about God's will and God's thoughts and the path to salvation. Yet they, uncritically, accepted such concepts as a dome over the earth, a talking snake, God killing a whole town of homosexuals right before he turned a woman into a pillar of salt. A man who was swallowed by a fish because he was running away from God. A man whose strength lied in the length of his hair. And many, many more weird concepts that don't make rational sense. And when I looked at the facts, and when I studied 
I didn't come out with what I wanted to come out with, and I was very reluctant in that. This is actually a common thing for ex-Christian atheists, and especially for me in particular. I became an atheist because I couldn't independently and objectively prove that God exists. I found that the same methodology you use to prove Christianity can also be used to prove a lot of the other religions, which in the end gets me to, at best, universalism. But even people like Matt Dillahunty, Paul Entz, Seth Andrews, they didn't set out to tell God to take a hike. They just wanted to be epistemologically sure about what they had been brought up to believe, It turns out they had been wrong, and they changed their mind and their lives in accordance to the evidence at hand. This is the height of intellectual honesty. I'm Robbie Smith from here in Rockwell, North Carolina. Uh, Brother Mitch, uh, can you expound textually, has there been any good thing come out of Egypt? Adamantius Origen, who lived from 185 to 254 AD, did not believe in the deity of Christ. He did not believe in the virgin birth. He believed that, that the stars were living beings that God died for, that Christ died for. He didn't believe in a literal rapture. He didn't believe in the uh, literal resurrection. He was the, uh, the father of dynamic equivalency. Yet... And this is a common theme that no Christian who honestly reads the scripture can refute. The Rakia. Origen believed in a physical dome that covered the earth. So it's funny that Canup lists a kajillion things wrong with Origen. But he never goes, oh, he's stupid for believing that the earth had a dome. Furthermore, there are plenty of false facts that Origen would have believed because the available knowledge during his time was not as advanced as it is today. I also find it interesting that he has a rant against Origen because he was from Alexandria, but Clement, Philo, and other important figures in both Jewish and Christian thought, they're fine. That's why your modern versions say uh, knowledge falsely so-called instead of, uh, instead of uh, science falsely so-called because textual criticism is considered a science. They're actually the same word. Science comes from the Latin sair, to know. So every time we say the word science, we're actually using the word for knowledge. And Alexandria is known for false scholarship. Alexandria has always been known for false doctrine. And they've been known for taking away from the scriptures. Well, you had that during Jesus' day. You had Sadducees that didn't believe in the resurrection, didn't believe in spirits or angels. That's why they were sad, you see. Oh boy, I don't miss the cringy Christian dad jokes. And then you had... Then you had, out of, you, had, uh, you had Pharisees who added to the Scripture their traditions. And Jesus Christ said, you've made the Word of God of none effect by your tradition. Well, that's nothing new. That's what Vaticanus' manuscript did. And what I'm trying to say is Vaticanus, Vaticanus, that ought to give us an indication as where it came from. That's what makes up at least most of your English Standard Version and all your modern versions along with Sinaiticus, and in some cases, Alexandrinus and other unsealed manuscripts were used in producing these modern versions. That's why things that are different are not the same. They don't read like your King James Bible, and they do damage to all the major doctrines of the Christian faith because those men down in Alexandria, Egypt, thought that they were God. They believed Greek philosophy, and that's what your New Age movement is based upon today. Never miss an opportunity to bash either the Catholics or the heretics. As I said in the previous episode, he cries foul when Nathan cited King James's own policy on paraphrasing 
Yet, Knup feels free to malign a sect, a city, a country. All right, Brother Nathan, uh, you use the ESV Bible in Mark chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. I got it pulled up here in your ESV. It says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face or prepare your way. Well, the phrase, behold, I send my messenger is not found in Isaiah, but it's found in Malachi. The King James Bible does not say it was found in Isaiah. It says it was found in the prophets. Would you say this is faithful to the originals? Does the originals have the mistake or does your ESV have the mistake? And if so, do you believe the originals have an error in them? Can you keep the microphone? I would like to ask you another question. Do you believe that this is, well, just tell me what your position is on Mark chapter one, verse two. Is this a perversion? Is this an I error? believe the King James Bible's right. But is the ESV in error? Is this a perversion? Is, does this prove to you that the ESV is wrong? Well, it says in Isaiah, but it's found in Malachi. So yes, I would say that is a mistake. Okay. Um, it does say that. And, and I think from my position, I can look at that and say they made the best decision possible. But we also know that this is not a misquotation because if, if you study Jewish cultural quotations of, of the Torah or what we call the Old Testament, uh, they commonly referred to things by the grouping of the major prophets. So historically, we can show that this is not an error. Nathan is definitely more reasoned when explaining his position. This is so refreshing. They chose the word, the, a word that wasn't the best from my position, and that doesn't destroy my faith. But from your position, you just said this is a perversion of Scripture and that this proves the ESV is wrong. Well, I want you to turn in your King James Bible to Matthew chapter 27, verse 9 and 10. Um, Matthew 27, verse 9 and 10 says, Then was fulfilled... That which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him that was valued, whom they of the children of Israel did value. Matthew 27, verse 9, King James Version. It does the exact same thing. That's not in Jeremiah. You can look it up. You can research it. It's the exact same thing that happens in Mark chapter 1, verse 2. And his comeback about Matthew 27, 9-10 was great. But the problem here with all of this is that either the Bible is not literally true or that there was an alternate tradition that ascribed the Malachi quotation for Isaiah or vice versa or that the gospel writers made a mistake or that the scribes made mistakes. Answers in Genesis have a laundry list of possible excuses. Among the most hilarious is Zechariah's second name is Jeremiah. And this proves a point that I've made all along in my counter-apologetics ministry, for want of a better word. Biblical literalism cannot be sustained without sacrificing your intellectual honesty. At some stage, you have to accommodate the fact that the Jews know more about their scriptures than you do, because you are standing on their shoulders, that your retroactive theologization is correct and has been the correct interpretation all along. This is why you need to find what the original texts are saying according to the original authors. You can't honestly put your intent or interpretation over the top, then say that your interpretation was what they meant all along. You are a Johnny-come-lately to a culture that has been around long before you were and will be around long after you depart. Don't be a jerk. Be a mensch. Uh, Harrison Morrow from uh, Kings Mountain, North Carolina. Uh, just a simple question, what would you say to those who maybe don't have the educational background or reading uh, comprehension ability 
to fully understand the King James Version, and maybe they would need you know, a simpler version to fully understand it. By the way, the modern version said that you may grow up to salvation. You don't grow up to salvation. Salvation is, a, is an instantaneous act of God. It's not a process. So that's the perversion in 1 Peter 2, 2, and almost all of the modern versions. He quotes 1 Peter 2, 2. But the KJV quotation of 1 Peter 2, 2 is one where the KJV gets it wrong. In the original Greek of 1 Peter 2, 2, it uses the term, and my apologies for butchering the Greek pronunciation here, Aphaxithe aisotirian, which means growing up to salvation. But for some reason, the KJV drops this English phrase in the verse. Why? Probably to fit a preconceived doctrine, just like what those communist ESV slash RSV translators did, right? Knup. As representative of the King James Version only movement, is incredibly hypocritical. If he came across an example where the ESV or RSV or NIV dropped a phrase, he would be all over it like a cheap suit. But when his preferred version drops a sentence, crickets. There is there is no excuse for ignorance in America. Coming from a guy who says, I don't even have the internet. I don't even have a smartphone. I don't even have access to the internet unless I go to the library. I don't want the internet. He also seems extremely uncaring about anyone with learning disabilities. The slaves were taught how to read uh, in America by reading the King James Bible. That's my reason why many things in their language come straight from this book. That's not something to be proud of. But thank you for confirming that the slave masters were forcing their religion upon slaves. Now, I just wonder what religion those slave masters were. Perhaps they were Scientologists? Janus? Proto-Rastafarians? If only I could read the letters and documents they wrote about their religious convictions at the time. Hmm, I wonder. Unto them that put their trust in him, add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. I've got enough problems with that God calling me a liar. So I'm not going to take the, his blood out of Colossians 1.14. And the NIV does it, and most all the rest of them do it. Now, if you want that, if you want that for a Bible and you call that a Bible, it's a free country, but I don't. I'm going to stick with the blood. You know why? Because God saved me, drug, got me out of rock and roll bands, amen, put my feet on a solid rock, and he did that through his precious, sinless, spotless blood. And when you take it out of the Scripture in any place, you're doing violence to the Scripture, and they all take them out, not just one time, multiple times. Multiple times. Now, if you want to stand at the judgment seat or if you're not saved at the white throne and answer to God for that, help yourself. I'm not going to do it. Mitch overlooks the fact that the ESV says much the same as the KJV. Mitch constantly complains that the modern versions have corrupted the scripture. Yet, in almost every example he presents, the ESV and the KJV line up fairly closely. And, as before in 1 Peter 2 2, the KJV actually cut something out from the ESV. And it's stuff like this that shows that King James Version onlyism is circular. What doctrine does the KJV have? The correct one. How do you know that? Because it's not in the ESV. Why doesn't the ESV have the correct doctrine? Because it's not in the KJV.
And also, pick King James Version onlyism if you hate Catholics and Jews. My name is Stormy Waters from Halls, Tennessee, and I have a simple question for you, Brother Nathan. You may not need your binder for this one. Um, you said when you um, study the Bible in your study that you use the King James Version and you also use um, all the others, right? Not uh, all the others, but I use... Okay, so you use, you use various versions. Multiple. Multiple versions. Four. More than one version <laughs> in your studies, correct? Yes. Okay, so... My question is, when you come to a portion of scripture in your studies and you're looking at all of these multiple, more than one versions, and you find an area where they contradict one another because there are those places multiple times, correct? Yes? Less than 1%. There are those places. Yes. Yes. Okay. So when you find those places, Mm -hmm. what... Or who then becomes your final authority in deciding which one to go with? Thank you. Great question. Okay. Thank you, sis. Do you understand the question? Yes. The best question of the day. If this question was asked during the debate, and I know that both parties agreed on the questions and format beforehand, the debate would be much shorter and more to the point are meaningful or viable. Less than 1%. So that almost never happens. When it does, we have unbelievable tools. I can do this on my phone if it would charge. I can actually look at the Blue Letter Bible. Get it if you don't have it. It has the King James Version on it. It's, it's mainly King James Version. And it has the Textus Receptus. So when I go back to the original languages, I can click on that, look at the Hebrew, look at the Greek. I can read the context. I can look at why different people made decisions, and very, very rarely do I find anything that I just don't know. But I want to show you something. When the King James translators were translating, they made decisions. Now, Brother Mitch has talked about Bible correctors. And I want to show this picture to everybody. And I don't know if you can see it from where you're at, but... Is this okay with anybody in here that holds a King James only position? What you see is is a Bible. And it's got things marked out, literally crossed off, written in the margins, corrected. Nathan's answer is very good. The Bible translators had to work with a body of knowledge and make decisions to the best of their ability and available texts. Decisions aren't a bad thing. The Bibles we have are an aggregate of the historical thought and collective scholarship that we have as time has gone on. This is not to say that the whole field is bunk. It just doesn't prove that a God exists. And, for example... We could have two imams up there arguing about the Uthmanic scripts versus the Sana scripts, with just as much relevance to the supernatural claims. But there is one way God could prove his existence, by coming down to earth to give us definitive clarification on what variants actually say what he really wanted them to say in the first place, and then put the heretical sex in their place, and help us live as happy families again. And the King James says, Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for defense of the gospel. What then, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. Can you not say that though you clearly believe people like me have misused scripture for our own means, even though five years ago I would have been um, defending you, can you not rejoice in that though there are differences in the translations, Christ is still being preached, as Paul said, and 
including my husband, who's with me, who has a strong walk with God and got saved out of the NIV. Is his salvation in vain? Oh, man. The second woman to ask a question, and that question is every bit as awesome as the previous question before it. Maybe Christianity would be in a much better state if women were allowed to run it. Something that every Bible believer needs to recognize is that love and unity without truth is harlotry. This syrupy age in which we live that Christianity has morphed into has done away with truth and God is not pleased with that at all. Billy Sunday said education without salvation is damnation. From what I see here, the King James Version only position and the independent fundamentalist Baptists don't want to help the body of Christ grow. They want to see their own movement grow, but not the church collectively. They're the kind of people who sit on their front porch and throw stones at the kids across the street who are sweeping the snow off the road. But you never, ever, ever sacrifice the truth on the altar of expediency. You never sacrifice the truth on the altar of love and unity. Because unity without truth is the ecumenical movement. And that's what I said earlier. It's being bound up. Being bound up together. And I contend that all of these modern versions that's taking the edge off the word of God is conditioning professing Christendom for a one world church under the Antichrist. This is exactly what I mean when I say that King James Version onlyism is doctrinally smug and acts superior to everyone else. But of course we're going to heaven. Those other people with corrupted seed? Hmm, I don't know. Their Bibles were translated by perverts and sodomites and baby sprinklers and people tied to Rome. So they can't be sure of their salvation unlike us. And I'm an independent Baptist, though being raised Southern Baptist. I'm an independent Baptist because we're governed by nothing but the Bible and God. Governed by nothing but the Bible, selectively read, of course, and God, who doesn't seem to exist except as words on the page in that Bible. So really, you're governed by a book and politics. Okay. Brother Jason Fuller. I am a Bible believer, Nathan, even though I'm not dressed in my white shirt and tie. Just thought I'd throw that out there for all you preachers. I like having fun like that. But anyhow, Acts 12 and 4. Should the translation render it Passover or Easter? And why should it be that way? A very direct question. But I would like to have seen Nathan combat the argument rather than play it down and get annoyed by all the conversation happening in the church as he's trying to think. First, Easter is not the wrong word where it is used in the King James Version translation, but it's also not the best word. Jesus' disciples would have called the festival Pesach, and if we look at the Greek, for Acts 12.4, it uses the Greek Pesach, which is the same word used every time for Passover in the Gospels. So, to be consistent, you can't go Passover, 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 and then suddenly switch it to Easter. This reminds me of when the church split were debating Nathan Rager, and Will was proving a point about alcoholic drink. He went something like, alcoholic wine, alcoholic wine, alcoholic wine, oh, non-alcoholic wine, hmm. And second, the Passover and the week-long Feast of Unleavened Bread are right after one another. So it's not a stretch of the imagination to say that if Peter was arrested after Passover, but during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and Herod wanted to wait until after the Passover, he will detain Peter, especially because the first and last days of the feast were Sabbath days. And remember, 
Acts is not a literal dot the I's cross the T's recounting of history. My name is Brandon Parker. I'm from Welcome, North Carolina. Um, during the debate, uh, Brother Canup, you mentioned that Luke chapter 19, uh, verses 41 through 44, uh, foretold the horrific treatment of the Jewish people at the hands of Nazi Germany. Um, so my question is, if the chapter and verse divisions were not added um, until 1555, did earlier generations of the church that had the Bible not have access to that truth? Well, sure they didn't, because they didn't have to. That's a last day scenario, just like the second advent's a last day scenario, just like the destruction of Jerusalem was a last day scenario. Anything can be a last day scenario when you believe hard enough and are looking for patterns. You remember the Bible code? And this is why I ask, how many last days do you need before you start to ask yourself if you've been stood up? Everybody that studies the Bible knows that every passage of Scripture in the Bible has three uh, interpretations, historical, doctrinal, or doctrinals first, and historical, then devotional, inspirational. Which I find that hilarious. Coming from a guy who has gotten facts of history wrong, and who even took his opponent out of context when he complained that King James was maligned. But it's also hilarious, because it comes from a guy whose religion requires him to take numerous Jewish scriptures out of context to support a preconceived idea. But most hilarious of all, Christianity is a religion whose number one response to criticism of atrocities documented in their holy book is, You're taking that out of context! Give me a break. Now, tell me you're into numerology. The same situation in, uh, arises in John chapter 1, the first five verses of John 1, talking about Jesus Christ. There's one book in the world that has 66 words in those five verses, proving the canon. The knops and bowls on the candlestick over there is Exodus 25. How many knops and bowls? You ever counted them? 66. There's 66 knops and bowls on the candlestick, which is the type of Christ. Over there in, Ex uh, in, in, in Leviticus, you got table of showbread. How they range? 12 in a row? No, they range 6 and 6. You look in your Bible, you look in your Bible in the number 6. The number 6 is associated with the Antichrist and judgment. In John chapter 2, verse 6, one book in the world has three sixes in that verse. And you find over there that 6 in the King James Bible, the larger percentage of the time has to do with the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As in Luke 15, 6. As in Jeremiah 50, verse 6. Over and over again, 6 has to do with lost sheep in the house of Israel. Without saying you're into numerology, Okay. Uh, actually in the uh, Geneva Bible and then the Bishop's Bible 1568 the chapter and verse numbers and they followed that same course and even the modern versions change they use the same chapter and verse numbers except where they leave verses out like Acts 837 is left out of here so it goes from uh, verse 36 to verse 38 and don't tell you there's a verse 37 supposed to be there that says that I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You know why that's left out? So you can teach infant baptism instead of believer's baptism. Because if you don't have to believe, you just have to be baptized. Any infant can do that. And, that's, and all of them leave Acts 8.37 out. I say all of them, the majority of them. While I agree with him that there are no examples of infant baptism in the Bible and that infant baptism has very little if any, doctrinal support. Even with that verse left out, you can't really make the case that infant baptism is a thing. It's not like infant baptism hangs on that one verse, and they left that one verse out to cynically push it as a doctrine. But what is interesting is that baptism for the dead can be seen to be accepted as a practice. 1 Corinthians 15.29 speaks about baptism for the dead in a manner that tacitly accepts it, though also not endorsing it. So much so that Mormons specifically practice baptism for the dead. So, it seems that the Mormons are one step ahead of the mainline churches. Is the Bible just written to one generation? Or is it written for all men? One generation. The contemporaries of Jesus 
were clearly expecting the world to end and for God to rescue them, them, them from the Romans who were brutally oppressing them. This is why Revelation was written, as a polemic against the Emperor Domitian and the Romans, and as yearning for salvation and comeuppance. All right. I'm Jill Jesse from Indian Land. Do you believe there's a difference between the Word of God and our Scripture? Our Scripture, if any. Just a thought. Do you understand the question? Thank you, yes. Okay. Um, there is a difference between Jesus as the Word of God, the eternal Word of God, the Logos, and written Scripture. Um, the Scripture testifies of Jesus, which is why I have a really big problem saying, in one translation, saying that He's exalted His Word above His name. Scripture is just a collection of texts written by people to convey ideas. But the Word of God implies authorship, as well as a sense of ownership and intent. For example, I have a book for sale, The Best Religion for the Task at Hand. My name is on that book, I published it, and I take responsibility for everything written and every point made therein. If you ask, what is the word of Damien the tall, friendly, atheist dad? Or, what is his opinion on a certain topic? You would go to Google Play or the iTunes bookstore, purchase it, read it, and go, okay, this is interesting. Then, if you wanted to criticize me because of something I wrote, you jolly well could. But, the Bible doesn't have that. We don't know who most of the authors were. Given the wide variety of thought and of theology in the book, it seems that the Bible is a product of the people of the time. I'm fine with calling that scripture. But calling that the word of God requires you to show that, assuming God exists in the first place, that God endorsed and put his name to every single word in the book. I don't think he did, and there's no way to prove that he did. I also get crabby when people call preaching the word of God. I remember years ago that I got chastised once or twice in my fundamentalist church for doing something in another room of the church while the sermon was on. And I got told, what are you doing here? You're not listening to the word of God. Well, neither were you. But also, that pastor in the suit, he's not God. I love scripture. I absolutely love the Bible. I love studying different versions. I'm not smart enough to do textual criticism. I'm trying to figure out exactly how they do it. And it's an amazing study. I love studying God's word. I love preparing but it's all to point me to Jesus. Jesus! Yay! That, that's what it's all about. I'm not a lib... Uh, I don't subscribe to liberal theology. I'm a very conservative theologically. Very extremely conservative. Which means you're a fundamentalist. Now, what I'm about to say isn't to Nathan specifically. It's to every Christian who says they're theologically conservative. If you're the type of theological conservative that believes that science is corrupted because the curse of sin is somehow affecting our eyes or affecting our telescopes or affecting our mass spectrometers, and you believe all that because your theology is offended by the findings of science, or you believe that all truth is God's truth. Or, if you believe that God monkeyed with the laws of physics without leaving a trace. Or, if you accept the Omphalos hypothesis. Or, if you believe that the endeavour of science is to kick God out of the textbooks so we can lie to the children to please our master Satan, then, while I'm happy to be your friend, and I'm friends with many theological conservatives, you're also the very kind of person whose influence I'm here to nullify. In short, if you're the kind of person 
that believes that all of the Sunday school stories are based in reality, then it's not me who is lying to the children. Brother Knopp, in your statements, you made a lot of comments about uh, Baptist heritage, German Baptists, and how Baptists have been persecuted due to their beliefs and how this is something to be proud of. If this is true, then were the beliefs of the German Baptists correct when in 1534 they took over the city of Munster, Germany and enacted forced polygamy, a king with over 10 wives, and had multiple beheadings every week to the point where the king danced around the body of his dead wife. Should we be proud of this German Baptist heritage? First of all, they weren't Baptists like we're Baptists. They were Anabaptists who had adopted Roman Catholic practice. Maybe we should start a hashtag, hashtag not all Baptists. But here, I think he's playing fast and loose. Anabaptists are still Baptists, just with slightly different doctrine regarding baptism. Also, if he's going to needle down his definition of what a true Baptist is, especially with regards to some of the tertiary doctrines, to exclude certain groups to avoid his argument from being shot down, then he's committing a no true Baptist fallacy. This book, which by the way, this is the ESV Student Study Bible, and the word study is left out of 2 Timothy 2.15. The only place, the only place in the Bible where you're commanded to study is in 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. This says to handle it accurately or divide it accurately, and brother, uh, and, and, and Brother Cravat mentioned about rightly dividing. That's not in that book either. You've got, a, you've got one command to search the scriptures in John 5, 39. Jesus Christ said, search the scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. The modern versions, including this one, said you search the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them. Goes from a, an imperative, a command, to a present indicative active. Changes a complete context of the passage only two passages in the new testament tells you to study and to search the scripture are both changed and perverted not only in this version but in every modern version so far almost every verse he has cited where he complains that the other versions are watering down corrupting perverting the text either the esv closely matches the kjv or it's actually the KJV that diverts from the original Greek, or has changed the meaning or context of the text. This is a bit like when a creationist crows that they found research, or a news article, or a headline that finally puts evolution to bed because evolution is rubbish. But, when you look into the actual claim, and especially the quote that was mined, you find it's a red herring. The claim of evolution being put to bed is bunk. But King James Version onlyism is the kind of doctrinal stance that says, we're the good guys, we never hurt anyone, then stabs you in the back. The church split, my two buddies there, can tell you about numerous people who have been disfellowshipped from the independent fundamental Baptist movement because those people associated with the Trendies. So this means that Baptist persecution of people is alive and well. It just doesn't involve flaying and public whipping. Need I remind Mr. Knup that the Westboro Baptist Church are also Baptists? If his response to that is that they're not Baptists, they're Calvinists. No true Baptist. But his line that the exception disproves the rule means that he can't say that Christians are good people because only 9 out of 10 of them are, and there's at least one of them that isn't. Yeah, all right. Yeah, my name's Pastor Mike Easter from, uh, from uh, Dover, Delaware. Um, you were talking about uh, the inspiration and how it came through transmission, and then you said translation was a different story I'm wondering, first of all, if you don't mind me giving you just maybe two parts, uh, I wonder, if, first of all, if you believe that 
um, it's impossible to jump from transmission, uh, if it's impossible for inspiration to jump across the uh, demarcation line between transmission and translation. And if not, and I have, whether I have just one Bible, it could be a King James or an NIV, or whether I have all 150 or ever how many translations there are, if there's no inspiration in the translation, doesn't it come down to the fact that I have to be the final authority about what God's Word is? I have to figure out what's right and what's wrong. But the original words that God spoke, that God breathed out, they're never going to go away. They're always going to remain the standard. And we can get back to them. And I can talk to guys that only use the King James. One of the men I love more than anybody else on this planet is my dad. And he only uses the King James. He only preaches out of the King James. And that's what he's always going to preach out of. We love each other. We talk about things. And he would, he would line up a lot closer to, to Brother Mitch. But he knows I'm a Bible believer. And I know he's a Bible believer. He doesn't demonize me because he understands the categories, where I'm coming from, what I'm talking about. And I don't want to demonize anybody that, that prefers the King James and that's the only version you're ever going to use, you only ever want to use. Man, you're, you're great. You don't have to go to the original languages to, to drag through and figure out. We have a trustworthy translation. The deeper we do go back to the original languages, I believe we get a deeper understanding. This is fantastic. If there is a God, and if he is as loving and as gracious as what I'm led to believe, I have a very hard time accepting that he's going to send people to hell for not reading or believing the right translation of a book. Nathan also makes a good point about translating it for remote tribes. The same way that you would tell as a King James Bible believer, if someone translated the King James Bible into some tribe's language in, in New Guinea, you would without fail tell them that you believe that if they learned English and came to the King James Version, they're going to understand it deeper because that's your standard. The Bible has even been translated into Klingon. So, suppose we find a Klingon who only speaks Klingon and some concepts don't translate so well from English to Klingon, does that Klingon go to hell because the only available revelation of God's word was not the KJV in English? But I will take exception to his comment about the breathed out words of God. If you have inspiration, let me clarify. I, I did, but I think you're confusing categories. And I think this position confuses categories. God's word is breathed out. Does it ever need to be breathed out again? Only if it goes away. Only if it passes away. The word is breathed out. It's always existing. And then it's written down. It's transmitted. And it's translated into different languages. But the breathed out words are always the standard. The breathed out words, we don't need to change them. It's the standard. I have trouble understanding how an anthropomorphic immortal being communicated words to humans. What I think it boils down to is that either God breathed and spoke like we breathe and speak, or God psychically communicated. The problem with either of these scenarios is that we can't reasonably prove that they happened. If God psychically communicated, then we have no way of knowing if that happened. It's like asking you to prove what happened in that dream you've been telling me about. You can't. And if you say God breathed and spoke in the same manner that humans breathe and speak, then this goes against the argument that we can't find God because God is timeless, spaceless, and immaterial. God had to do something to cause air molecules to vibrate in order for us to hear them. Remember, sound is just wiggly air. And any other answer 
aside from either psychic communication or wiggly air, requires even more reliance on mythology and esoteria. In other words, religious dogma, not scientific veracity. Mr. Corvette, given your expertise in church history, uh, your growing up around Dr. Peter Ruckman, and the fact that you know Brother Mitch's side very well, and the fact that you have made the decision to change sides, given that basis, do you believe, if you are correct, that the Lord will be harder on Brother Mitch at the judgment seat of Christ? Or if you are wrong, do you believe he will be harder on you? The main reason I'm not King James only, the, the, the biggest reason, is because in the Independent Baptist Church, I was taught that the Bible is our final authority in faith and practice. And we don't create Bible doctrines apart from God's Word. There's been a whole lot of logic going on in here, and I've tried to answer the logic of the points that Brother Mitch has made and what I've listened to in his sermons. I'm specifically debating him, so I tried to deal with those things. But we don't create doctrine based upon logic. It, it has to be clearly exposed and exposited from God's Word. You don't even believe based on logic. So why all of a sudden balk at basing doctrine only on logic? If we took your stance seriously, there is no reason to have church on Sunday, because the original Sabbath was Friday to Saturday. Sunday meetings started only in 321, thanks to old mate Constantine. And also... Women would neither be allowed to talk in church, nor have short hair. Men wouldn't be allowed to wear hats, and all sorts of other socially restrictive doctrine. Thank you for listening to the Tall Friendly Atheist Dad podcast. Have a great day. Have a great week. See you next time.